Yeah, brother. There's a lot of people out there talking about us, for us, at us, but seldom with us. So it's time that we get out there and express our voices, share our worldview, and become accountable. Why? Because I am Five Fibs. A podcast that invites free-thinking black men into a shared space for unapologetic conversations about contemporary issues related to self, society, and the world. So join us for these provocative moments. Let's get at it. Welcome to another edition of I Am Five Fifths. I'm your co-host, Damod Mansoor. And I'm your other co-host, Bill Thomason. What's up, Fillmore Black? What's going on, Dollar Bill? How you doing, my brother? Good, man. Good, good, good. Yes, sir. Well, you know, today is really a very sensitive but important discussion to have. We're going to be talking about 9-11 as we get into the 20th year uh, of that that, uh, momentous event. Right. And um, wow, man, I mean, it's it's a lot to talk about. I'm glad that you wanted to bring this topic up um, for discussion. Why, why, why did you want to bring it up? You know, man, as I look back on my life and you think about impactful moments that we've had in our lifetime. And I remember like my mother, my grandparents, you know, they used to talk about remembering the day Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Right. And the day when JFK was assassinated. Mm -hmm. And those were moments in time where you never forget where you were or what you were doing at those points in time. And, you know, I know the word anniversary. I I was, me and you were rapping, right? I was like, man, I don't know if anniversary is the word we want to use. So we'll just say 20 year remembrance maybe that's the better word to use but i felt like that was such an impactful time uh for not just the country but the world it was a that was a global event man where all eyes were on the united states and how we were going to respond and to that so i just felt man today uh we're you know this is around that time let's have a conversation about it 20 years after it happened. Let's talk about it. Let's give it a perspective. Absolutely. Well, you know, you brought up something that has to be the question um, of the century. Where were you on that day? Yeah, man. I mean, like most of us, as I said, we probably, everybody I know remembers where they were on that particular day. And in that day, I remember I was a hedge fund manager. It was right around the time I had just launched my hedge fund. And so I'm sitting in my little desk and I got my little four screens up. And because, you know, we're Pacific time, it was like six o'clock, five thirty, six o'clock, six thirty in the morning. So I'm up, man, got my PJs on and I got my screens up and I got Bloomberg and CNBC on mute. And I'm walking around, like looking at my trays. And then I'm just noticing like all this stuff that starts coming up on the screen. So I hit the the, the unmute button. And that's, that's what I remember the first, that very first hit when they showed it on the, um, uh, the very first time the, the plane hit the uh, first tower. And I remember I was just in shock Cause I was like, whoa, that wasn't like no little commuter plane. That was like a a real plane. And what I know, the little that I do know about aviation and and flying, I'm like, something ain't right. Ain't no way in the world a plane gonna crash into a building like that. Yeah, I I think that was what was so interesting about that moment, man, was, you know, you looked at, you, you saw that plane and, it, it, there was just kind of this this uh, brain freeze for a moment to say, is this a movie or is this yes. really happening, man? I mean, I, I what I remember is just that moment, man, not knowing necessarily how to perceive what I saw. Mm. 
And you know what I remember, and I can say it as a fund manager, because I was managing a fund. I didn't even pay attention to my portfolio after that happened. And I remember a couple of people asked me, man, what did the markets do? I said, I can't even tell you. Because as soon as I saw that, I immediately went into shock of what I just saw. And I wasn't even like... And that's why I, when I used to, when I was listening to all these stories of people who were at ground zero and they were talking about how they were hanging around the tower. I heard yeah. some people talk and I remember thinking, man, if I just saw that, bruh, I'm getting out of town, right? I'm getting on a bike, a scooter, a skateboard. I'm getting as far away <laughs> from the world trade centers as I can. Bro, but it, then it, I understood. It, 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 yeah. I understood. It's that it's kind of like, remember, it, it, what do they call it? Car wreck mentality. It's like, yeah. that's why people slow down when they see a car wreck on the freeway. Yeah. They just want to see what's going to happen next. Man, I and, think, I, you know, you bring up a good point because I think if. I would have saw that, man. I would have been in a full sprint, man. You know, I, I would have been running like your boy, man. Uh, um, what's the name of that film? Um, oh, I'm forgetting the name of it right now. But when the dude, um, when the dude just start running and he, he never stopped. Oh, you talking about Forrest Gump? Forrest Gump. <laughs> Thomas, Tom Hanks. Man, I, that that would have been me, basically. Me too, man. You know? I would have not stopped, man. I, that's why I said in the horror. That's why Bill can't be in the horror flicks, man. Because <laughs> see, the first time somebody die, I'm out. Yeah, that's the end of the movie for Bill. <laughs> Bill getting in his car. Bill driving to uh, uh, Canada. I'm yeah. getting away from the serial killer or the hatchet man, or <laughs> Jason or whoever, Freddy Krueger. That's right. Hey, I'm out. Peace. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, man. It's it's funny because I my experience wasn't dramatic. I was actually at the house mm. um, and looked on TV, saw it and was just kind of, you know, um, suspended um, because I just didn't really know what to make of it. Now, were I, you up that early or did you catch it? Like, cause it happened around eight thirty or nine o'clock. Yeah. So was, that's five thirty six. You know, I'm an early bird. Yeah. Man. I, I, I was up around seven thirty when I believe I first okay. saw it, and I'm not. And I, so I think it was on repeat at that point. Okay. Um, but what I remember most about that day was this this very elusive ideal that we we like to talk about here in, in America, mainly because you know the name of our country is the United States, right? But we we know that. The United States is not something that necessarily reflects uh, our reality, usually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And on that day, what got me was this moment of unity that I just never saw in the country. Mm-hmm. And that was really um, animated most, man, by walking around Oakland. And dude, I'll never forget this. Seeing some gangsters, like real live gangsters, you know, some brothers who were in a gangster type car, you know, rims and all that stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. And man, these cats was rolling down, man, with American flags, you know, wow. up their windows, right? And they wow. were like, we gonna go get them. And I'm like, are you gonna go get them? <laughs> Are you, I mean, are, are you, you know, you about you to brother, go hop on a plane to the Middle East? Them brothers look like they were about to drive to the scene, man. <laughs> they, they had their flags out. They were like, let's go. Wow. I was just like, wow, man. I've never imagined that I would see this level of unity in the country. I, I think for me, it, on some levels, a little different. As you know, I'm from Detroit. And what a lot of people may or may not know is that Detroit has the largest population of Middle Eastern people yeah. outside of the Middle East. Very, a huge Middle Eastern community. 
And I remember calling up my family and they were telling me, man, that it was people in Detroit ready to start going after people in the middle, in middle oh, Eastern yeah. families in Detroit. Like those people were in hiding. Oh, they were, yeah, they were, in, they were in tough position. Because all of a sudden they became enemy number one. Didn't matter that you weren't there. Your people that they were calling it, right? Yep. These were your people. So all of a sudden, my mother was like telling me at the time and my family, they were all like, oh yeah, it's it's getting, it could be bad here. Because all like that, those gangsters that you saw in Oakland, mm -hmm. see the Detroit gangsters, they had somebody to retaliate against. Sure, sure. They, they had a face yeah. they could put to what just happened. Yeah. And they were going after them. That's interesting. Well, you, you you bring up a good a good point here, and that is, um, what occurred afterwards, and really what we become, and be I guess became and become. Mm -hmm. um, sorry for the poor English verbiage there, but um, what that kind of reminds me of is, you know what occurred afterwards in terms of how the citizens kind of turned on, you know, the, the Arab population and, and actually people and who, and, Muslim. yeah, and Muslims and people yeah. who look like them because there were yeah. like Indian Sikhs who were being like attacked. Yes. Right. It got nothing um, to do with that. It had nothing to do with it, but really what that speaks to is a tradition in the United States where, um, Say it, brother. In these times of anxiety, yep. um, there's a nativism that uh, clicks in, and we begin to really go after certain groups in a way in which um, results in their detainment or um, violence or um some type of retaliation hatred 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 hatred, hatred. hatred man yeah. yes i mean world war ii right yep japanese japanese attacked pearl harbor united states said we're gonna round up all the japanese yep and, and and the sad thing is chinese folk was getting caught up in that right yep chinese folk we ain't got nothing to do with that but you look japanese we can't tell the difference we're throwing you in too absolutely I, I mean, you know, and that's, you know, part of it is, you know, when I look back on that time, again, 20 years, man, I don't know about you, man, it don't seem like 20 years though, right? I know. I don't, I don't, and I can't even put my arms around it, but all I can say is I, when we, we're looking back at how all of a sudden people need an enemy yeah. to go after and that that's part of what we I'm just going to use the word that's part of the hatred I think that's rooted in the American system and yeah, the American no climate. So what so people like go ahead man go ahead. I was going to ask you so what do you think what do you think are some of the the impact and kind of the remnants of 9/11 today? Um you know we just talked about how we usually kind of respond in our short-term memories. Mm -hmm. But what do you think are some of the remnants that um, that shows up today? I think the first thing I can think of is an appreciation for the first responders. Yeah. I mean, even COVID showed us that, right? Mm -hmm. But I think for, again, I'm talking about in my generation, my mm -hmm. lifetime, I had never seen an appreciation go out to first responders like police and fire, emergency, you know, those search crews. Cause all I remember thinking was, and I and by the way, Amadi, I think I told you, man, I lost some cats in that. You right. know, some of my traders, the cats that work with some of the firms that I was a that uh, I traded with. They died. I actually had a really good friend who was a trader at Cantor Fitzgerald. Wow. Cantor Fitzgerald was they lost a lot of people. I think it was 700 people yeah. they lost that day. He was one of them, black cat. 
young black trader, man. And you know me, man. You know I've always tried to find the black traders at these firms. And he was a cat I got introduced to, man. And the sad thing, Ahmad, he was married and his wife was, I remember it distinctly because I remember him telling me how excited he was about having his first child. His wife was like three or four months pregnant when he died uh, in nine, you know, 9-11 attacks. And I just look back on that and I think about those first responders and all of those you know, images that we saw of people going into those towers and going into the debris and the rubble. And for days, man, you remember, they were still pulling live people out days afterwards. You remember that? They found pockets of people who had survived for days under all that mess. I don't know if it, how many of them it was, but I remember that they did find people. And you think, like I remember hearing the story of one dude, he said he f- remembers just falling. And he said when they, when he, you know, got in the hospital, they told him he fell 18 floors. Wow. And he survived uh, basically unscathed. Yeah. He hit he, It was one of those perfect air pockets, right? Where he just fell straight down into something that he landed softly enough in where he didn't break no bones. And it just covered him up. And then the search dogs found him. So, you know, it's interesting that you bring up, <clears throat> excuse me, the first responders, because, yes, you know, you began to kind of see the, um, the framing, the narrative of first, first responders as these heroic figures in our society. And obviously, you know, I, I'm, I'm less adverse to the term hero. Um, even though I know that we we like using that and it gives us a sense of comfort to be able to identify people as such. And and perhaps they were heroes on that day. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I think what we've done is taken a lot of those images from that day and have um, kind of um, made that term indelible part of their identities. Um, it was very interesting to to see. Well, you know, I've always said, man, the heroes are not, you know, sports figures, entertainment figures, even politicians for that matter. I said to me, the hero is the, the, the single parent in the hood that's trying to raise their kid through all kinds of obstacles with no money and, basically surviving and getting their kid off to college. And that's, those are the heroes to me. And again, that's not to take away from first responders by any means. I think, and I think it was Charles Barkley who even said, man, don't look at me as no hero. I'm not no hero. I'm just a dude playing basketball. So, so I, and, and you and I have talked about, man, how, even those images, right, of first responders, I, you know, and again, this is no, you know, my, and I'll just say it as a disclaimer, this is no slight on any of the first responders and the lives that they save, because when they were going in to save lives, they were saving lives. They wasn't looking at black, brown, green, purple, or yellow. And, and, absolutely, and that's what I actually love about um, firemen, too, is that you know, that's always been something that comes through very clear. You know, they will they will go into a building, you know, and there's no color attached to it. So, yeah, anyway, go ahead. Excuse me. Yeah, because I'm like, look, I grew up with uh, in Detroit, a couple of the casts that I grew up with, they're uh, firemen for the uh, Detroit uh, Fire Department. Right. And over the years, I've had conversations with them about, their jobs and what they had to do. Uh, one of them ended up going into, I guess, his management within the fire department. Mm-hmm. You know, he was, he didn't go into buildings anymore. He was basically, you know, the dude with the fireman's suit on, tell a fireman's outfit or fireman's uniform, telling other brothers what to do. Yeah. Whereas my other friend, he basically stayed in the house up until his fifties. Yeah. Where he was running in the buildings up to the time he retired, which was actually last year when he was 55. Right. 
So let's bring it back to this 9-11 thing, because I, I believe one of the points that we were making about um, 9-11 and kind of the, the, the heroic figures that was uh, presented, you know, to the American people was that we, we also know that, you know, inside of those fire departments, you know, you were dealing with nepotism and issues around management and and diversity, all those things that um, reflected the kind of the interdynamics of, um, of of first responder life, should I say? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you and I talked about this, right? We've talked about the images of the pictures, the video. We saw very few. Uh, in my case, I would say very few, almost if any, Black or Latino firefighters in any of those images of first responders. Doesn't mean they weren't there. It's just that I remember thinking, I know this is New York. Uh, and everything that I've heard about New York, I don't live in New York, but I know people that do. And they talk about the favoritism that existed in the police and fire department and the lack of diversity for people of color and women for that. And I remember on 9-11, when I, most of the images that I saw were of white men and they were firemen, first responders. Again, now, did I see every single picture? Did I see every video? No, no, not at all. But it, it was something that became very evident and clear to me is that I did not see the diversity. And I hope, man, that that changed um, after 9-11. I don't know if it did or not, but I'm going on my own personal observation. Now, again, a life is a life, brother. You know that. I'm not discounting the fact that those men and those women that died, black, brown, green, and yellow, that died trying to save lives, man, that, you know, they, they should have gotten the rewards that they that they that they were due, and even you and I were talking about, you know, the financial rewards, the the compensation fund that was set up for victims, the fire the fire department and the police and all those. Don't matter what color you were, those if you die, then trying to save some lives and protect this country, you are rightfully uh, should gotten some compensation, you know. And I'm not again; these are areas I'm not an expert in. And as you and I talk a lot about, man, we give, uh, uh, we just give in our perspective on things, not to discount it, but say, I just, I'm, I'm one of these cats of my, you know, part of what I like to do is I like to put things out just for people to think, not saying I'm right, not saying I'm wrong. Here's just something that I want you to think about and just pay attention to. I think another aspect of 9-11 that I found interesting was how, you know, and we forget about this, but the the erection of the national security state, mm-hmm. um, I think that that has played the biggest role in terms of our, our psyche, uh, our sense of insecurity, even though we call it the national security state, but in many ways, it almost feels like for the last 20 years, um, we have constructed boogeymen mm-hmm. and designed a security state around it that not always reflect um, the reality of what it means to create safety. Um, there and actually in New York, you know, I was just listening to someone speak on this, how they spent you know hundreds of millions of dollars in designing you know national security and intelligence through the NYPD mm-hmm. and as they're doing reviews and audits of that particular apparatus today uh, they can't necessarily point to receipts <laughs> you know they can't point to um, how that apparatus have actually stopped um, events from occurring. 
even small mm-hmm. events. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was listening to the um, one of the the National Islamic Associations, International Islamic Associations, one of the largest one, and they were just talking about how NYPD created this intelligence inside of the the Muslim community in New York. And it really created a paranoia that they were looking on each side of each other. And that did not give the NYPD a return on investment. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. You know, and remember, man, now now I'm I'm going down. I'm sitting here now. A lot of stuff is, is coming back to my remembrance, you know, about remembering how if i remember correctly this the tsa and homeland security that was born out of 9 11 yep right yep those two organizations were born out of this out of this horrific event that happened in in our uh in our nation's history and you know but i also you said it man a lot of the paranoia that went on because of that you know, Muslim families being, you know, harassed. Uh, as you mentioned, you know, the sheiks, right? Ain't got nothing. To, they just look like people from the Middle East, right? So I remember that. I do remember. I remember talking to some of my friends who were Indian, telling me how they were getting harassed in the airports after all of this. And they're like, I'm not even Muslim. I'm not even Middle Eastern. So yeah, it, it was it was a dark paranoia, man, that got created almost immediately after. And I I remember the first time I got on a plane, and I remember uh, there was a cat who you know looked like he was from the Middle East on the plane, and I just remember everybody looking at it, right? E- even when we were in the boarding area, everybody literally was staring this dude down. So yeah, man. Whew. Well, I think the other aspect of the national security state is data, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. um, how we began to look at privacy and what we were willing to give up in terms of data. And it's interesting how the national security state paralleled with the uh, with the emergence of tech platforms that were also collecting their own data Data, that we, that we were opting into, Mm -hmm. you know, and those two apparatuses have been working first starting off on a parallel track. And now what we've what we found is that those two actually cross, they cross up, Mm -hmm. you know, the Patriot Act and some of the, the technologies that were created to, um, to really mine information from the private, from those private platforms. So there's been a lot done that we, I think that we're so sub it's we're unconscious of to a degree that we have allowed it to become part of our culture. Let me ask you now, now you are really taking me back down memory lane. So I remember when the Patriot act was, you know, uh, again, I'm no expert on this, but I remember when the Patriot Act was enacted. And one of the things I learned in my little bit that I knew about politics is a lot of times they sneak stuff in under bills and laws. You know, they they put the big stuff up on top, but then in the small print, they sneak in little bitty things, right? And maybe you mo- know more about that than I do, but it also took away a lot of our freedoms as American citizens, right? Yeah. And I, re- I just, and I remember there was an outcry over that because that's when people felt like now the government, because of this event that had happened, it allowed it allowed the government to be even more uh, intrusive into people's daily lives and their politics. I mean, in their their, their political beliefs, religious beliefs, all of those are things that could now be looked at, you know, if you're going for a job or something like that. 
Well, it came to a point now. I mean, it came to a point then, and I guess even now, where if you go to the library, a public library, um, depending on what you check out, <laughs> you could get a uh, flag. You, you, you can get a not not only a flag, but you can get a knock on the door. Yeah, I you know. So that that's that's the degree in which we have given up some of these liberties. And so I have a question back to you, and that is, how much do you think people really care about this, about their liberties and and their data? I think in general, and you know, I I I'll just say it. I just feel like most people don't care because most people just care to operate in bliss and ignorance. I do, just in general. I think most people don't really pay attention. They, they're they happy with the way they can go about their regular lives and do things, and they don't understand a lot of the things that are going on around them. They prefer to just operate in this, this world of bliss and ignorance. And as long as it doesn't affect me and my daily life, I'm okay with it. That's my opinion. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think most people, you know, part of what it means to have a social contract with a with a state is that you're you're exchanging security um, sometimes for your liberties. Sometimes, not all the time, but you know, but what you're expecting from the state that it's going to protect you. And the state gets to sell you a number of ways in which they could do that. Um, and that sale is predicated on whether it meets a constitutional standard. Mm. And I think that what has happened since 9-11 is that the government and its presentation of the national security state, that's what I what I meant earlier about how they created this boogeyman. Creating that boogeyman allowed for the state to sell some of their more riskier products related to security. And as a result of that, you know, we've given up some of our liberties with the idea that the return would be protection from the boogeyman from the boogeyman and the reality is is that mm. we've we've done very little to really measure whether those those protections are actually working now what the national security state will tell you is there hasn't been any events since then and so that that would be their sale because the national security state can always say well there's things that we can't tell you but you are safe, right? You are safe. So, man, that leads me to ask you a question because one of your things that, that I respect you for is as, as a futurist. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that has happened recently, as we've discussed, is the withdrawal of American troops from Afghanistan. And now what we're starting to see is that that country that at one point you know, had some freedoms because the uh, American military presence, right. you know, where, where people had jobs and they could move around and do a lot of other things. And women were, you know, had a lot of freedoms that they didn't have. Now that they have begun the withdrawal and their withdrawal, now you see what I'm hearing is that groups like the Taliban are going to resurrect themselves in that country. Where they're, they're, Could, run, they're, where they're running, it's their government now. Right, right, right. That's right. So, but what I meant, I guess the way I, what I was trying to get say was resurrect that strong terrorist presence right. that, they, that, they, that they did not have, that they probably will now have. And I wanted to ask you, do you see a potential return to terrorism on American soil or a direct attack? on American citizens, because now they're able to rise up again. Well, 
That's a loaded question. I and... know, man. <laughs> I know I didn't prepare you for it. No, it's all it's all good. I, I there's a couple of things that I see. One is that the Taliban part of their agreement with the U.S. is that they supposedly will uh, protect their government will fight against allowing terrorist terrorism sales to uh, co-locate in the country. Now, that's a very difficult agreement to make, given the fact yeah. that uh, Afghanistan is so huge and you can drop in from so many different ways and basically live in, in caves or small uh, villages hidden by mountains. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't know how much a guarantee you could give there. However, my assumption is, is that the United States also uh, agreed with a very strong warning tag. And that is, if this stuff jumps off here again, uh, we will be back and we will obliterate um, your presence here as we did before uh, when the when 911 um, when when 9/11 first started. And so if I had to kind of project you know into the future, um, I would want to hedge my bets that our national security apparatus um, knows where the hotspots are. And they're like, they're still monitoring. Everything. They're still, they're still monitoring that they have a lot of uh, human capital, a lot of human assets mm-hmm. um, that are there because that's one of the areas in which the CIA really, or should I just say our national security um, really, um, really kind of pumped up their game after 9-11 is that they they really invested in human intelligence and having more on the ground so that that data was more in real time. Because I think one of the things that we ended up counting on too much prior to 9-11 is that we became a little bit too drunk on our surveillance systems. You know, um, mm-hmm. and having that type of data that provides us with stuff. But now I think we have a much broader range of options, you know, to to see what's happening. So in some, what I would say is that um, I don't know whether Afghanistan changes the calculus more or less than what it was before we left. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that the that you have to look much larger at where jihadism and uh, terrorism is as a philosophy, mm-hmm. whether it's being embraced more uh, by citizens around the world. And what I would say to that uh, dollar bill is this: that's all going to depend on how we as a world with the United States being the leader construct a global economic system that allows for more people to participate. Because unfortunately the, the challenge with us, you know, for the last 30 years is that even though we've created a global economy, um, there are still countries and civilizations that are not modern. And as long as you're not modern, you're susceptible to Islamic jihadists and Islamic, um, or should I just say kind of the terrorist, terrorists that want to set up sales and communities in, in, your, in your country. Mm, man, it's a lot to think about, brother. Yeah. It's a lot to, lot to think about yeah. because we, we all sit here in our safe American homes. And the one thing 9-11 did was it showed us that on some level we aren't safe. Yeah. You know, that we have to always be vigilant and weary of the attacks that could come at any day, any given time. And 
you know, first of all, man, my my condolences go out to every family member and every uh, uh, first responder and anyone that lost is listening to this podcast this that lost someone during 9-11. That was one of the most horrific things that ever happened in American history. Right. So I, I, I want to say that if you're listening to this and you lost someone, I know on behalf of myself and Amai, we send you condolences to you and your family. And I, I know that the 20 years, it may be a dark uh, remembrance, but what I hope is that, um, you know, you were able to move on with your life. I know I, I've watched, you know, some documentaries and one of the hardest things that it talked about for people to do was to move on. And in fact, the young brother, I, again, I won't mention his name because I don't have permission uh, for his widow to use it. But the young brother that I knew at Cantor Fitzgerald, I do know for a fact that she remarried. Right. Uh, she she had his child, but she remarried and she moved on with her life. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I haven't spoken to her in years, but I got to think, you know, you can't stay in that depressed state, you know, and you, Ma, you and I often talk about one of the things we rap about, right? Mental health. You know, you said it's a point in time where sometimes no matter how horrific the event, you got to let it go yeah, for your own mental health and that's, to move that's, on with your life. That's a process. You, you, you know, you, we were talking earlier about, because um, just in your commentary there, you know, you bring up not only moving on, but it makes me think of that film that we both saw. Um, I, I guess we can say it. Uh, worth, you know, yeah. which was uh, on Netflix. Michael yeah, Michael with Mike, Keaton. Michael Keaton. Yep. One of the things I, I want to get your opinion on just how you felt about that process of determining uh, someone's worth, because in that film, a lot of that was tied to the ability of people to go on with their lives. We saw that. Mm-hmm. Man, I got to tell you, when I look back on that film, you know, I'm a financial guy, man. So anytime somebody talking about finances and numbers, I'm interested. And I remember the part that broke that broke me in that movie, in that uh, movie, I guess. Yeah. And that movie was the scene. Remember when they had all the Latino people in one room, people of Latino descent, and they had the translator. Yep. And the woman was translating and they threw out the number 200,000. Yep. And they were like, for all of us, like basically they were like, we get to split $200,000 and they were happy to get it. Yeah. And I just remember thinking, oh no, like that's, you know, because Majority of the people, again, I didn't, uh, uh, I, I didn't know. Well, the movie didn't make clear all of those people's jobs, right? right. But what you, what was evident or in, how can I implied yep. was that those were the janitors yep. and the dishwashers and the people that had died, and that those people were just happy to get anything. And you remember when they walked in the room, the first thing she said was, we don't care if you're undocumented, right? You know, like, Mm -hmm. in other words, we're not going to, you know, get your information so we can deport you. Because you and I have been around enough people in this country who are here um, uh, under some other status, right? Where they they don't go to the police. They don't go to the, they don't call EMS. They don't get COVID shots, right? They're not trying, they're trying to stay off the grid the best they can. But that that scene there, man, that one, and then the the scene with the the I think his name is Tate Donovan. I think that's the name of the actor who played the wealth manager. Yeah. Who was doing the power play. Yep. Like, 
like, hey, I want all this money up top for my clients because they were already making money and they would have made more money if not for this. And the power play he tried to play. I, and, and I looked at it from both sides, right? You got the super wealthy, influential, uh, affluent, privileged white man who's still trying to get more money, even from dead people. People are dead. And he's still trying to get more money. Whereas you got the people here on the other spectrum who may or may not even be in this country legally. They're just happy to get anything. Yeah. And by, and by the way, so each so each one of the um, so it, it wasn't two hundred thousand to be spread for all. Of oh, them. no, I know. No, but, I know. But, but once they, they learned, thought it was, they thought it was. But once they learned that it was each, you know, their their eyes just lit up. But I think. That's my point. No, yeah. that was my point. I know, I know. Right? They were like, "Wow, we'll yep. take it." Yep. It wasn't no debate. That's what I'm getting at. Whereas Tate Donovan's character trying to squeeze for Oops. more money. Everything. Well, you know, and it really does bring up, you know, not only just an existential uh, question, but really it brings up an actuarial question in that film, which was, you know, how do you determine worth when you do have such a wide spectrum of people who are um, janitors and cooks versus someone who may have worked at a Cantor Fitzgerald who were making bonuses. Seven, that, fig seven yeah, figures already. Yeah. You know, and that, I think that's a, that's what I enjoyed about that film because that's what needed to be wrangled. You had all of these different people who came from different perspectives. And then at the end, what I found interesting was that the 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 headmaster, Michael Keaton, who was really using more of an actuar an actuarial mindset. He was just looking at the numbers, mm -hmm. but he began to process those applications based on the stories and the experiences that um, that people were bringing into. Uh, the conversation about who they their um, their loved ones, their lost ones were. So I, I thought that was very interesting. You know, the thing that I've always said, man, is that part of one of the things I like to do is not give a right or wrong answer, but just have people think. And to me, that was one of the biggest things that was my takeaway from that film was it made me think, you know, can you actually do that? Yeah. Can you put an economic figure on someone's life? You know, because you tell the you tell the the actuaries that work in life insurance companies, your doggone Skippy, you can't, mm -hmm. right? That's what I go to school for. That's why I took, you know, all these exams and so that I can be an actuary and I can actually tell you what that number is versus you know, in this film, it showed the impact of making the human side, the yeah. human element. Because, you know, for again, I, um, I watched it because I wanted to actually see how all of that went down. Because I remember when that fund was established. And all I could think about immediately after that, that incident of 9-11, that, I mean, you know, again, I'm a financial dude. First thing I started thinking about was the lawsuits that was going to come. I mean, that was even, that's the, one of the first things I thought about at night. The airlines were going to get sued. Everybody that could was going to get sued. So they didn't have a choice. They had to do something because that would have toppled the economy. And you remember, Imad, when it came out later, how the Taliban profited millions because they did a short sale on yeah. all of those airline stocks. Remember how that came out later? Yeah. That they knew that the impact of that would be dev devastating to the American financial economy, particularly the airlines. So they did short sale. And I remember it came out later, they made millions on that, you know, to fund, you know, to fund terrorism. Yeah. So that movie for me, um, 
you know, I thought about, you know, the people that I, that I knew the traders and I knew some traders that died and I knew if I was there, like, how could you put a number on a cat's life like that? I, I mean, I couldn't do it. I couldn't, I don't think I could do that, man. Yeah. Well, we're getting close to closing here. Um, but what just came to mind that I just want to bring up, and if we can, let, let's see if we could be uh, short with this. But also with 9-11 was the killing of Osama bin Laden, right? What later, I fa- right, later, 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 later yeah, of course. Uh, uh, Barack Obama's administration. That's yes. correct. Yes. What I found interesting, though, with that was that oh that Osama bin Laden was the number one. He was not only enemy number one, but he was basically the symbol of evil and, and pretty much represented everything that threatened us as Americans, at least in our head. Right. But what's interesting is man, when Obama took him out, how, it was kind of downplayed in terms of the credit that was uh, how the how the credit was disbursed. Now, for the record, I'm not a big Obama fan, right? Okay. However, uh, I will say that that was really huge mm-hmm. for him to not only make that decision, but uh, to be successful. And really take away the the the, the blanket, the the darkness that um, that hovered over the American psyche as long as Obama uh, uh, Osama bin Laden was still alive. Yes. But did didn't you kind of? I mean, I'm I interested. I just want to get your feedback on this. Did you kind of feel like by the time we took Osama out that um, that we kind of didn't throw a lot of flowers towards Obama for that particular feat. You know what, man? I think Obama should have gotten more credit for that. Like they really, because if correct me if I'm wrong, I think Bush went after him and he failed. Right. Well, I wouldn't say he failed. He just, they just didn't catch up with him. I, I don't They wanna... missed him. They yeah. missed. All right. Well, let me just say they failed to kill the dude. I'll, yeah. I'll just leave it at that. Okay. And they, they, so they did not get him and they're, uh, I know they went after him though. Remember? Of course. They went they, after well, him. Well, they after. had a whole they had a they had a whole platform set up to to get him, no doubt. And and it wasn't until Obama came in office. And I remember when that happened. Um, you know, I remember I, I'm sitting here because I kind of re- I remember where I was when that happened. I'm sitting here now. I was in Oakland when that happened. I think I was uh uh, just walking around outside downtown Oakland. And when it came out that they had taken out uh, Osama bin Laden, I always looked at him as like the bully in the schoolyard. Like as long as he walking around, he's a threat right. to anybody on the schoolyard who he just feel like picking on that day. And you, until you take him out and you're right. I don't think Barack Obama got enough credit for that, man. Yeah. I, I just, you know, when I think of, the enormity of that event and when i think of the type of wars that we've been in whether it's world war ii or other wars or other warlike events mm-hmm. you know when when something major happens in world war time when there's a win um, the president usually gets erected to a, mm-hmm. a higher status mm-hmm. you know and given the fact that what you just said uh, moments earlier, how this was the biggest event in U.S. on U.S. land, uh, 9-11, for Barack Obama to be successful at bringing um, bin Laden uh, to an end. It's just surprising that that wasn't, um, that that did not become this high level celebration that erected him into a different 
status. Like you never hear that when it comes to when we think about Obama's like um, presidency, uh, it comes up, but it's it's not it's not really put at the top as kind of like a seminal event. You know, um, if I'm correct, again, I'm I'm no, I'm not good on uh, American politics, but if I remember right, after World War II, wasn't it was it MacArthur who was the president, General MacArthur, who became the president? Maybe I'm wrong. I might have to go yeah. look that up. But it's like you know, after World War II. And the United States was victorious and taking down, you know, the Nazi regime. Harry Truman. Was it Truman? Okay. All right. Um, MacArthur came later, though, didn't he? Maybe like a few years later. But I think part of it was, again, I'm no historian expert, but I think part of the reason MacArthur won later is he was on the coattails of that American victory over the Nazis. Again, don't know if I'm right or wrong, but a, you're right. Barack I'd have felt like he never got the credit that he should have for taking this dude out. And, you know, um, because one thing was clear after he went into hiding, we knew that, you know, but he was still able to do damage. Cause remember, I, I do remember this. Remember the day of the attacks. Remember he had family in America. And if I'm correct, the United States government was the one that paid to have his family taken out of the United States, if I remember correctly. No, you're you're correct. They found him and got him out of the U.S. Well, because the the bin Laden family um, is a prominent family in Saudi Arabia. Like, yes, they're they're one of the biggest construction uh, builders. um, in the Middle East, or really around the world. And so that family had a long history of, um, and a lot of money. And so that, I mean, that, that's, that's why Ben Laden was able to do it. So, and, and as you know, that really wasn't uncommon, given the fact no. that um, no. that the, the heirs and the, the very wealthy uh, sons and daughters of um of uh of of the arab uh, saudi family you know they all they all attend harvard and columbia all yeah. the ivies and top 20 schools here in the united states anyway yeah so. and then and it's all and i i if i remember correctly osama was the black sheep in that family yeah yeah right he was but he, he but he also had enough education and knowledge to know that hey i'm gonna short sell the u.s american right. airlines after I blow up the building. Absolutely. Absolutely. And because I I remember just when I heard all of that, man, right? Because I do remember in the following days how the U.S. stock market was in turmoil. Right. And, you know, part of the whole thing around what, you know, what you're talking about, man, is like the president, you know, and this this is, you know, and and I know we're coming to the end. So I I guess the only thing I want to say is this. That that part of it with Barack Obama and him doing that, you're right. I think a lot of it probably had to do with the fact that a lot of people didn't want to see a black man be the one responsible for taking this dude out. Now, again, I, I could be wrong, but we know a lot of people did not like Barack Obama just because he was black. I know it. Yeah. You know, that's no secret. That's no secret. A lot of folk didn't like him as president just because he was black, you know, and I just felt like they didn't want to give him any kind of credit for doing nothing. Because remember when Trump came in office, what's the first thing he did? He spent the first year dismantling pretty much everything he could that a Barack Obama had done. Truth, truth, brother. Truth, brother. I know that's true. On that note, right? Speak some truth. The truth will set you free, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Well, brother, this is an interesting discussion. I I, um, just get to kind of go down memory lane. And sometimes it's just great to 
reflect on something that's huge and that has such a seminal part in our daily lives that we don't necessarily stop to think about how that's impacting us. So I want to thank you, man, for indulging me today, Dollar Bill. Oh, thank you, brother, for indulging me. This is a uh, mutual indulgence. <laughs> I, I guess I said that right. Guess right. that. Well, we'll I roll guess with that. that came out right. We'll roll with it. All right, my brother. <laughs> All right, man. Peace. Peace and love, brother. Peace. <laughs>